Amen. Well, good morning. Well, I know what you're used to hearing. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. It just feels not right to not say that, so I have to. But we have a very special Sunday today. It is Mission Sunday, beloved. God's church universal, God's church corporate is undefeated. And he is raising up people to go to the nations to take his word. And so today we are immensely blessed and uh, excited to have the Croy family with us. Now, some of you have been, uh, uh, were here last uh, year, I believe. No, it would have been a little longer than that ago when they came and, uh, and shared their vision for what God had called them to do. And they are nearing the end of that road and getting ready to launch into what God has for them. And so we're excited to be with them at the uh, very end of this uh, uh, journey that's really just beginning. Um, but uh, Casey and Autumn are such a blessing to us, and their children Atticus and Elise and Aiden, and their new one Evie, even uh, brand new parents as well. So, beloved, I ask that you uh, uh, open your hearts and your minds uh, to uh, to what they would uh, share with you about what God is doing in Brazil and the call that God has uh, placed on their hearts. So, Casey, please come. Good morning. You can uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3, verse 31. Again, that's the book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 31. We are text for this morning. Before we get into... Uh, the text and our sermon today. Um, bow your heads and uh, join with me in prayer. Lord, uh, we've come to the point in the sermon, Father, where we look to your word, Father, um, for hope, for encouragement, Father, to hear you speaking to us and to our hearts, Father. Lord, um, I'm the uh, chosen speaker and mediator of that message this morning, Father. Lord, you know, Father, how uh, always. Uh, inadequate, I feel, Father, when I go to do this, Father. Lord, uh, remind me, Father, throughout the message, Father, that uh, ultimately, Father, what needs to happen uh, during this time is for you to speak into our hearts, Lord, uh, for you to transform our minds, for us to hear a word from you, Father, not from me. Help me to stand out of the way, Lord, uh, so that your word may shine true, Father. Lord, um, may your Holy Spirit be uh, in our hearts, Father, and uh, guide us as we go through our text this morning. Amen. So we're looking at the book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 31 this morning. So some of you might have looked over this one verse already and wonder why in the world are we going to be looking at this uh, isolated random guy, Shamgar, for our missions text on a missions emphasis Sunday. Well, let me go ahead and uh, explain that as best I can. So for one thing, uh, as I've gone around at different churches and uh, tried to uh, tell people about what we're doing uh, in our ministry in Brazil, one of the things that my wife and my children have been so kind to tell me is that I get a little carried away when I start to share with them. So 
I, my plan is to perhaps, if I only look at one verse this morning, perhaps we can get through that and get through me talking about what we're going to do in Brazil, and maybe we'll be out of here by about mid-afternoon or so. We'll see. But um, more importantly, uh, the reason that we're going to be talking about Shamgar today is because this short verse on this random judge has impacted my heart in a profound way. And my prayer this morning is that he will impact your life in a profound way as well. And that the link between him and the mission that God has given to all of us will begin to become crystal clear as we move through uh, this verse this morning. So uh, before we get to the verse, let's uh, spend some time uh, looking at the context for Shamgar. It's an important thing to do whenever we're studying the Bible, uh, but especially when we're looking in the Old Testament and at a relatively obscure passage. So we are obviously in the book of Judges, which describes the period of the Judges, right? So if you know your biblical history, you'll know that uh, the people of Israel uh, at the end of Gen the book of Genesis and at the beginning of the book of Exodus found themselves in Egypt under the uh, rule and dictatorship of Pharaoh, right? And God raised up Moses to uh, lead the people out of Egypt, to exodus them from Egypt. And they were wandering around the desert in the wilderness for a while. The people of Israel were never really all that faithful to what God had called them to do, to the covenant that he had made with them. And so, but eventually they were making their way towards the promised land, right? And so Moses dies before they enter into the promised land. And then we get to the book of Joshua, right? Which immediately precedes Judges. And Joshua, Joshua, we learn how Joshua led the people through the promised land and how they conquered the land and how God was uh, instrumental in them being able to come in and take this land that he had promised them. The book of Joshua ends with a... Um, with a really great verse, Joshua is uh, standing before the people of Israel and he asked them, you know, choose this day whom you will follow. But as for me and my house, we are going to follow God. And that is the charge that he leaves the people of Israel with in the promised land before he dies, right? And then we turn to the book of Judges and we immediately encounter bad news, right? Because it is not in the people's hearts to follow after God. They are immediately... Uh, essentially unfaithful to the covenant that God has made with them. And so what happens is uh, we see a cycle start to emerge in the book of Judges. If you've read through the book of Judges, you've likely uh, kind of um, uh, had this uh, cycle come to your mind. But basically what happens as we go through the book of Judges, we meet these individual judges, and the cycle that happens almost every single time is that the people of Israel will be unfaithful to the covenant that they promised to keep with God. God will deliver the people of Israel over to their enemies as judgment upon them. The people will realize that they don't like being under the hand of their enemies, and they will cry out to God to save them, that they are so sorry for breaking their covenant, right? And so what happens then is God raises up a judge or a deliverer to come and save the people from, them, from their circumstances. And we see that cycle, but it is a cycle. And so we come to the end of it, and now we're right back at the beginning. The people immediately almost fall back into their sins. 
And so we see this cycle play out over and over and over again uh, throughout the book of Judges. The people disobey. God punishes the people. The people cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer to rescue the people. Now, Shamgar's single verse, uh, I say single verse, he actually gets two verses as far as I'm aware in the Bible. One's in Judges chapter 5. He's just kind of briefly mentioned. Uh, We don't really get any more information about him. Uh, there than this verse, but for this single verse that actually narrates his story, we don't see those elements play out in Shamgar's, and so we're not really sure if we're supposed to just, uh, in our minds, the author intends for us to supply that cycle, uh, or if this was just uh, some sort of an isolated case, but nevertheless, this is the uh, cycle that we kind of see and kind of sets the context for what Shamgar is all about. So let's uh, take a moment and do some thinking about Shamgar. So I'll go ahead and read the text for us. It's Judges chapter 3, verse 31. After him, him being Ehud, who we would have just read about if we were going through the text, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. If you were to read any commentaries on the book of Judges, and if they discussed Shamgar at all, you would likely find a lot of uh, interesting things about the Shamgar's name and the place where he was from. Um, we're going to forego those discussions in our, in our uh, walk through Shamgar's verse this morning because, in my opinion, they tend to be very speculative. They're not really based on any uh, solid evidence, and the text seems to give us this information for identification purposes, right, and, and not to make some kind of veiled uh, message about who Shamgar is or where he comes from. And so we know enough to know that his name was Shamgar. He was the son of Anath. This is identifying uh, who Shamgar was. Now, let's look at what he did. What, did. what did Shamgar do? Well, he killed 600 Philistines. I have a note down here in my manuscript just to say, that's a lot, isn't it? That is a lot of Philistines. Um, there's a lot more to that, though. There was, this was uh, more than just an unorganized band of people going around. The number 600 would lead us to believe that this is an organized army under a commander. Um, you don't have to turn to this uh, scripture. I'm just going to flip to it real quick, but uh, just give you some idea of how we kind of know this. Let's look at a, or listen to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, verse 15. This verse says, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And so we get these little clues if we pay attention to them all throughout Scripture is that 600 men tends to be the number of an organized uh, army or a military unit. And so when our text said that Shamgar killed 600 Philistines, likely what is in mind is like a military battalion of some sort. Um, The implication of the text is that Shamgar faced this regiment alone and took out every one of them. We might be tempted to think that the author is intending us to fill in maybe a few details. Maybe Shamgar was the 
uh, captain of a band of Israelites and he's just getting all the credit maybe for it, right? But I don't think that seems to be the case because we're going to talk about uh, Shamgar's weapon in a moment, but the text makes it very clear to say that his weapon was an ox goad. He took him out with an ox goad. We'll describe that in a, in a minute, but what would it mean if Shamgar had an ex, uh, ox goad? What would it do to the impact of this passage if he had an ox goad, but he had with him a a uh, thousand other men who were armed with Uzis and M16s and whatnot, right? It kind of it kind of diminishes the uh, impact of the text, and so I don't think the authors wanting us to fill in any kind of details like that or anything. Uh, I think the author's goal was to us to take away uh, that Shamgar alone faced down this battalion of 600 Philistines. So I mentioned his weapon. What was his weapon? Well, his weapon was what's called an ox goad. So most of y'all are probably not familiar with what an ox goad is. Um, as near as I can make out from my study, an ox goad is nothing more than basically a pointy stick, right? Uh, it might have had a metal tip on the end of it that was a little, uh, a little sharp point. Uh, but what an ox goad was used was for prodding cattle so that you could direct the cattle where you wanted them to go, right? Uh, <clears throat> you're driving cattle down the road and they start to veer off to the right and prod them a little with your ox go to get them back on track, and then a few minutes later they go off the other way and you kind of jab them back. So um, I was actually curious last night. I was wondering how much would it actually cost to get an ox goad uh, in, in today? Um, Adam told you I have four kids, and so I thought it might be handy to have one of those on hand. Um, I looked it up on the Internet, and uh, funny enough, you, you can't actually buy an ox goad, at least that I couldn't find one. Uh, anymore, so I'll have to come up with a different plan. But um, we're not really told why Shamgar decided to use a pointy stick to kill these three, uh, 600 Philistines. Um, it is possible that he was out ox goading his own cattle one day and he uh, looked across to the hill next to him and he just saw this band of uh, this regiment of Philistines uh, walking uh, along to go cause some kind of mischief somewhere in Israel and Perhaps he looks down at his pointy stick and he looks back at those Philistines and he's thinking, not today, boys. And he goes and he thrashes every one of them. It's also possible that the Philistines, the people that he had uh, subduing in this text, um, had actually subdued the whole nation of Israel. That seems to be the pattern in the, in the book of Judges. The Israelites are given into a nation's hand. And so it's possible that the Philistines had taken away all their weapons uh, interestingly, we'll look at, uh, let's see, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, and you can just kind of listen to me read through this. But um, this verse says, Now there was no blacksmith to be found through all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. And so it kind of seems to be the pattern of these conquering nations of, you know, we've conquered these people. Let's get rid of all their weapons. And so uh, perhaps uh, Shamgar just had to use uh, the weapons that were on hand. Uh, whatever the case, we don't really know for sure, but we can know for sure that the ox goad was an improvised weapon, right? It was not what you would typically take to face down 600 Philistines, right? This was an improvised weapon. So we've kind of already come to the end of walking through our text. Let's... Uh, Let's turn our hearts to some application 
And I think through the application, you'll begin to understand why I've become so enamored uh, with this guy, Shamgard, and why I think you should be too. A couple of points of application. Uh, Shamgar did not allow less than favorable circumstances to keep him from what he knew God was leading him to do. Let me say that again. Shamgar did not allow less than favorable circumstances keep him from what he knew God was leading him to do. Nothing was set up well for Shamgar, was it? If I'm reading this passage correctly, uh, it's basically 600 to 1, right? And the 1 only had a pointy stick, while the 600, I presume, would have been paired for a major skirmish, right? And so Shamgar didn't care because he knew that God was leading him to deliver Israel during this time. He would not allow less than favorable circumstances keep him from what he knew God was leading him to do. You know, I can't help but wonder this morning if there might not be one or more than one of you whom God has called to do something for his name's sake and for the gospel, and you're not doing it because you don't feel the circumstances are right. If Shamgar here were here this morning, I think we would all be a little scared of this man. Uh, and if he knew what was going on, I suspect you would be walled with an ox goad. You see, if that is where you are this morning, we need to look to Shamgar. When God came calling, it didn't matter to Shamgar whether the circumstances were right or not. It's got to be the same for our lives, doesn't it? When God comes calling, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. What matters is that you pick up your ox goad or whatever the means God has allowed you and you push forward in his service. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about our ministry that we're trying to get started in Brazil momentarily, but um, I'm just going to talk about it a little bit in advance just to illustrate that point. I began God calling uh, me to do theological education in an uh, overseas context all the way back in 2008. And I was open and excited about that then. Uh, I had a few years, actually um, more than a few years, probably about five or six and maybe longer of preparations that I needed to undertake uh, before I was ready to do this. I just had one stipulation. I did not want to have to raise monetary support to go overseas. I wanted to find some way of being obedient to God's calling without having to raise my own support from family and for, from friends and for churches. Well, we'll fast forward to the year 2018, and I realized that I had exhausted every way I could think of obeying God's call while not raising my support. There was just no other option for us to be able to go, and I said, well, I know that God has called me to do this, but the circumstances are not working out. Let me figure out what else God is calling me to do since God obviously wouldn't want me to attempt something when the circumstances were less than favorable. And I spent two years of my life spinning my wheels and trying to figure out what God had wanted from me. And at some point, God, I believe, just answered, KC, stupid, it's the same thing that I've called you to way back when. I finally realized that in late 2020. Uh, I realized that God's purpose for my heart or for my life had not changed. I just had to be willing to do what I did not want to do. 
And ever since then, I don't know that any of the circumstances have necessarily swung in my favor, but I know that in pursuing this ministry that I'm going to describe in a moment, I'm walking in obedience to God, even in less than favorable circumstances. Let's think of a second point of application. Um, Second point of application is simply that God's means of delivering his people is not always easy to predict. I'm going to read that again as well. God's means of delivering his people are not always easy to predict. Who would have thought that this one man with a pointy stick could deliver Israel from 600 Philistines? Who could possibly think this up? But there it is, right there in Judges chapter 3, verse 31. He, that is Shamgar, also saved Israel. Is how that verse concludes. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus Christ, right? Who would have thought that the betrayal and death of this man, Jesus Christ, that by his betrayal, God would work to save the people from their sins? What season is it? It is the Christmas season, isn't it? Who would have thought that this baby boy, born into such meek and meager circumstances, would be used by God to save us and for all the world from their sins. God's means of delivering his people are not always easy to predict. So we've uh, gone through our text. We've thought of some applications. Uh, I want to take a few minutes and kind of extend this by thinking about some biblical theology. I'm going to explain to you what I mean by that. I want to transfer from exegesis to biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? I mean simply recognizing the interconnectedness of Scripture, how the different parts of the Bible all hang together to form a consistent message. This is one of the things that just drives me to study God's Word. I love seeing how all the parts of God's Word fit and hang together. So thinking biblical theologically about this text, I think the main point that we are supposed to come away with is understanding God's glory and our weakness. I'm going to say that again, God's glory in our weakness. Shamgar is a perfect illustration of this, isn't he? Because there's no way that Shamgar goes out and defeats 600 Philistines with a pointy stick unless God is on his side. Not even somebody like Chuck Norris could go out and uh, defeat 600 Philistines with a pointy stick, right? I love seeing how all this hangs together. God's glory is revealed in Shamgar's Weakness. This is a key theme throughout the book of Judges. I want you to think about Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? The beginning of Gideon's narrative is purposefully constructed so that you will understand that Gideon is a very weak individual. Let's read the beginning of his uh, narrative, if you'd like. Uh, It's probably just to flip over a page or two in your Bible. Let's look at Judges chapter 6, verse 15. This is the very beginning of Gideon. I'll give you a second to turn there. So this is Gideon. An angel of the Lord has appeared to Gideon, and he said, "God has called you to do, uh, called you to this task, O mighty man of valor." And listen to what Gideon says. And he said to them, "Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house." We see all the way already at the beginning um, 
Gideon is setting himself up, even at his own admission, that he is a very weak individual. And yet the Bible is telling us that God is going to use this weak individual, this nobody, in order to deliver his people. Do you remember how God gave Gideon victory? This is so fascinating to me. Gideon, after he gets over his initial reservations and a couple other things happens to him, uh, Gideon shows up to this battlefield with 32,000 men, right? And he says, okay, God, we are ready. Bring on these Midianites. We're ready for them. And what does God say? No, 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 Gideon. You've got it all wrong. Because if you go into this battle with 32,000 men, people might think that, You have won this victory in your own strength, right? And so what does God do? God begins to tell Gideon, you've got to get rid of some of these soldiers. And through a series of tests and different things, Gideon's army of 32,000 people gets whittled all the way down to 300 men, right? And after this process, God looks at Gideon and his 300 men, and he says, all right, Gideon, you're ready. And in my mind, Gideon's kind of thinking, okay, God, this isn't really what I had in mind. But what happens, right? God sends the 300 men to surround the Midianite army, and he gives them trumpets and lamps, and they bash the lamps, revealing the light, and blow on the trumpets. And every one of these Midianites begin to turn and clash and fight with one another. And God delivers Israel through his strength for his glory through Gideon's weakness, right? Think about Samson. Samson's a very interesting character. He's got to be one of the most frustrating people in all of God's word, right? What is he known for? His superhuman strength, right? This is big Samson, strong guy, causes all sorts of trouble for the Philistines. But his pride and disregard for God eventually lead him to be captured, right? His hair is cut, and all of his God-given strength is gone. His eyes are put out by the Philistines, and they put him in chains. Samson becomes the epitome of weakness. Strong Samson becomes weak, enchained Samson. And what happens? The Bible tells us that the Philistines took Samson to parade him through one of their uh, theaters or their citadels, and Samson places his arms on two pillars, right? And in Samson's weakness, he finally turns to God and says, God, let me be revenged upon my enemies. And he extends his arms and topples the pillars. And listen to what Judges chapter 16 says about Samson at the close of his story. I think this is so fascinating. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all those people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Isn't that fascinating? Strong and mighty Samson who was responsible for killing and subduing so many Philistines in his death while he was at his weakest he actually kills more Philistines than he ever did while he was in his strength. This is a major theme throughout all the Bible, God's use of our God's ability to get glory and our weakness. Let's think a little bit earlier in Scripture. Let's think about Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. 
You don't have to turn there. I can read it for you. But this is simply God speaking to Moses and describing the people of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't go and pick the strongest and the mightiest nation he could to be his people. He picked the lowest and the weakest nation because God's glory is best revealed in our weakness, right? Let's think momentarily of the Apostle Paul. Uh, again, you don't have to turn there, but uh, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 through 31. I think this is where this theme becomes so apparent in Scripture. This is Paul writing, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for, to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that. God's glory in our weakness. Let's turn one further passage. We're going to look at uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Uh, I'll read it to you. These verses say, so keep me from becoming... So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I heard Pastor Alistair Begg once say, or once ask, have you ever considered the possibility that your limitations and your handicaps may prove to be the key to your usefulness in the service of Christ. I think that gets at the point of Shamgar and the rest of what we've been talking about this morning beautifully. Have you ever considered the possibility that your limitations and your handicaps may prove to be the key in your usefulness to the service of Christ? That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is all about what we could not do for ourselves there's no way in our own power and our own strength we could ever secure forgiveness for our sins, right? No, only God could do that, right? 
the gospel is all about God's glory and our weakness, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Christ accomplishes our redemption because we never could. This is what it means to be used by God, isn't it? You see, when we are used by God, God takes all of our shortcomings and all of our flaws and all of our mistakes, our ox goads, if you will, and uses them to accomplish his purposes for his glory. I think that's a perfect segue into presenting our ministry uh, that we're trying to get started in Brazil uh, to you. I stand before you today as an incredibly weak individual with a lot of shortcomings. I, I couldn't even buy an ox goat online, and, online, so I'm not even on the same par with Shamgar, right? But I believe that God is going to use our family and all of our weakness for his glory in the nation of Brazil. So there's a uh, brochure that made its way by, I think I seem to have lost mine, or it slid down uh, in the Bible, but nevertheless, some of you have uh, probably got that sh- uh, brochure that they handed out some. So uh, this came out, uh, was handed out to you at the beginning of the service. This kind of gives you some quick information about uh, who Autumn and I are and our family and uh, organization that is coordinating our going and some of what we are going to do and what the need is for Brazil and how you can support us. But uh, I'm just going to walk you through a little bit on that uh, brochure. But what are we doing in Brazil? Well, we're doing theological education. I'm going to teach, uh, be teaching in a school known as the School of Christian Pastors. It is one of the only opportunities for pastors in northeastern Brazil to get the kind of training they need in order to effectively lead their churches in gospel ministry. The kind of uh, theological training that I've been afforded and that your pastor has been afforded and I think some of you others have been afforded uh, just isn't available uh, in a lot of places uh, throughout the world. So who are we going with? We're going with an organization called Training Leaders International. It's T-L-I for short. I want to make sure I get that right. So it's T-L-I. T-L-I coordinates sen- the sending of missionaries with PhDs such as myself to teach formal and informal courses to pastors around the world in locations where theological education is otherwise hard, if not impossible, to obtain. Get this number that they use. Of the 2.2 million evangelical churches in the world, 85%, are led by pastors with no formal theological education. Simply put, and I could share personal stories uh, with you to back this up and would be glad to after the service today. Simply put, that means that the teaching that you and I take for granted on a Sunday morning is simply not available in most evangelical churches around the world. People have little opportunity to actually grow in their faith, and this is not an environment in which the gospel can thrive, right? This is not, um, our ministry is going to be able to change that, at least in northeastern Brazil, where people are open to the gospel, but there are few people actually contending for the gospel. So how can you help us? I'm going to point you to two ways. First is through prayer, and uh, well, both of them are through prayer and through sacrificial giving. I don't want to neglect prayer. We need it. As I said before, I'm going to Brazil as a deeply flawed 
and weak individual, and I mean that. If I'm going to be a blessing to these pastors, it is going to have to be because God is working through me, and I want to have your prayers in order to make sure that this happens. For financial giving, I'm happy to say that we've uh, received 100% of our one-time setup and training needs. Some of you were actually a part of that in our church. But in addition to our one-time needs, we also need monthly support in order to keep our monthly ministry or our ministry going. TLI has created a monthly budget for us. It is $6,670. And I'm happy to report that as of today, we have $5,167 coming in monthly. That is 77% of our monthly budgeted needs. And we are so close. We just need a little bit more than $1,500 in order to meet our monthly goal and to go be a blessing to these Brazilian pastors uh, and so that they can get the training that they are yearning for and that their people are yearning for. My request for you today is to consider whether God is leading you to sacrificially support us through monthly giving as a church and as individuals. We're getting to the point where every commitment is getting us tangibly closer to our goal, right? And so we have a series of um, amounts and stuff listed in this brochure, but really any kind of amount that you are willing to give to us is getting us tangibly closer to where we need to be in order to go uh, and begin this ministry. I want you to remember Shamgar. He did not allow less than ideal circumstances keep him from what he knew God was calling him to do. He allowed God to use him and his weakness because it is in our weakness that God's glory shines the brightness. If you want to know anything else about Brazil, TLI, or our ministry, or how you can help us, uh, if you have any questions, I want to ask that you please speak with Autumn and I after the church, uh, after the service today. We have some information packets that we'll give you. It's a little bit more. Uh, this is included, but we have a little bit more uh, information in that. Uh, our number is actually... Um, on the back of this brochure. And so if you ever need to reach out to us, you can send me a call, give me a call or a text. You also see my uh, email address there. I love getting emails from people as well. And uh, on the uh, this side of it, if God is leading you to become a monthly uh, sacrificial partner with us, uh, it's as easy as putting your camera on your phone over this little QR code, and it'll take you straight to a personalized giving uh, page for us that TLI has set up for us, and you can go through and get that all set up. Uh, and there's also other ways to give as well if you prefer to do that through checks or whatnot. Um, I'll just close by saying there is nothing more that would bless Autumn and I more than speaking with you about uh, what God has called us to go do in Brazil. We are excited about it. We are excited about how far we have come uh, towards this endeavor since the last time that we were speaking at Harrison Hills Baptist Church. And we're excited to see how God is going to lead you to partner with us to get us the rest of the way and to see what God is going to do uh, in our ministry there and be able to report back to you in the years to come about the difference that your church is making uh, in Brazil and through that, hopefully, through the rest of the world. Thank you for listening to me today. Uh, I'm going to close this out in prayer, and then I believe Adam is going to come up. So let's go to God in prayer. Father, uh, May we be open to you using us in our weakness, Father. Lord, what a diminishment that is to our pride, Father. We don't like that, Father. 
We don't like the feeling of being weak or unprepared for something. Father, we like to have all of our ducks in a row and for God to be able to use us at our best and in our strength, Father. And Lord, you, you don't need any of that, Father. Father, you are glorified in our weakness, Father, far more than our strength, Father. Not that we could ever excuse not being, uh, being unprepared, Father, to uh, serve you, Father. But ultimately, Father, what you were able to do through us does not come down to us and our talents and our skills, Father. It comes from you, Father, and what you are willing to do through us, Father. Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that uh, the story of Shamgar, Father, as brief as it is, Father, will resonate in the hearts of these people, Father. Father, that um, they would not allow less than favorable circumstances keep them from doing what you are calling them to do, Father. Father, that... Uh, they would know in their heart, Father, that salvation comes from unexpected means and places, Father, and that they would seek to give you glory for that, Father. Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that your glory uh, revealed in our weakness, Father, would resonate with our hearts, Father, and that we would put all that we are, weak as that may be, Father, on the table for you and for your glory, Father. Lord, I pray, Father, for the ministry of the gospel in northeastern Brazil, Father, and for the students at the School of Christian Pastors and for the churches that some of these men are already taking part in leading, Father. Lord, um, the gospel in your glory is too big, Father, for just one people or for one nation, Father. You have called us, Father, to take the gospel throughout the world, Father. Lord, uh, I believe, Father, that this is a gospel ministry and a ministry that can have a wonderful gospel impact, Father, on what you are doing in the world, Father. And uh, I pray, Father, for these pastors. I pray for us when we get on the ground there uh, as we go to train these individuals, Father, um, that you would bless the efforts that we have, as weak as they may be, Father, for your glory. Amen. <clears throat>